Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church for our second session today. Um, we will uh, go through our, our songs and the offering and then uh, ask Randy to come and talk to us just briefly about uh, missions. So we have that uh, wonderful event in front of us. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sets in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he will meditate day and night. He will be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall never wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. And that is just an absolute wonderful promise that our the Lord has promised to bless us if we are not walking in an ungodly way. And uh, it's something that we should certainly take to heart. We have just a few seconds uh, for spiritual preparation, which is also our opportunity to prepare ourselves for the rest of the worship service, which means part of that worship service is our personal giving, our opportunity to reciprocate in love towards the Lord, uh, towards God for all that he has done for us, the many, many blessings. We understand that we give not reluctantly or under compulsion. That's exactly what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. But we give with a relaxed mental attitude. We give with, really, I think even a better one. We give willingly uh, because we know who the Lord is and what he's done for us in our lives. And we also realize, and by the way, this is another uh, area that I would like to revisit in one of our one of these mornings is giving and how the remarkable uh, doctrine of giving is expressed in the word of God. So let's take a few seconds for personal spiritual preparation and then I'll open us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for our worship service. We're thankful for the National Capital Bible Church that you have located here in the capital region. We pray, Father, that uh, as we uh, desire to grow, that we'll have the ability to grow, and that we will grow, Father, as you provide either our incentive to, uh, to talk to others or for others to come to us. We also, Father, thank you for the... Uh, the way that you have blessed us individually. And we're thankful that you have given us this opportunity and this method to express our love to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'd like to have, um, this is our opportunity for Randy to talk to us about missions. We've contributed to missions uh, throughout most of our uh, history as a church. And I think it is important for you as a congregation to hear how that the, those funds are being used. So I'd like Randy to come forward and talk to us uh, briefly about that today. And as I said, uh, next week, uh, we're also going to try to give you an update on the Good News Club, Good News Clubs, because uh, that's another area where we have an expenditure of uh, what we could call as our missions, missions fund. So I'll turn it over to Randy at this time. Thank you, Dan. Pastor Ingram, I mean, 
I talked as long I talked as long as I could waiting for you to get that up. Appreciate you giving me the whole hour. Yes. Well, um, the purpose, let me tell you what the purpose of this presentation is not. It's not to give you a comprehensive update on our missionaries. Um, our list, our prayer list is up to 18 now, uh, with a, a few recent additions which I'll cover here. But uh, Pastor Dan asked me uh, a few weeks back if I would prepare an update specifically on Ralph and Cindy LaRosa and uh, the work that they've been doing in the aftermath of the uh, typhoon, uh, Typhoon Haiyan, that hit uh, Central, Philippine, Central Philippines on November 8th. Um, and the reason is so that you as a congregation can see um, how your church dollars are being put to work because every year we do give a financial gift to one or more missionaries we have in the budget. Uh, it's, uh, when we started, it was $1,500 a year. Um, it's up to 2000 now. And so um, we just uh, recently got a newsletter from Ralph and Cindy LaRosa. And when, when that came into my inbox, I read it and forwarded it on to Dan and some of the other uh, deacons. And Dan said, hey, how about uh, giving a pitch and just showing the congregation? So that's that's the main purpose of this. Now, in doing my analysis, uh, based on what the, the commander told me he wanted, I did my mission analysis, and I had to break it down into the specified and implied task. Uh, he wanted to see how your dollars are being used in the missions area. So I'm going to include as part of that an update on CPF. That's part of this briefing, but that will be part two. So it will come at a later time. I haven't fully uh, developed that part, and we didn't want to. That probably would have taken the whole hour. So I'll just uh, mm-hmm. focus on Ralph and Cindy uh, La Rosa. I will mention a few, the few recent additions to our prayer list. And a couple reasons for doing that. I just want for your general awareness, so for prayer purposes, because that is how we, as a the small congregation that we are, we support our mission organizations and missionaries primarily through prayer and that's very important so I want you to be aware that they're on the list uh, in case you don't come to the Wednesday night class and also uh, second reason is I want you to be aware of some opportunities and visual opportunities that are available to a couple of these new organizations and again the uh, CEF Good News Club update will come at a later date so uh, Ralph and Cindy LaRosa are in the Philippines do we have a pointer up here? Yes, should be right there. Sit up on the podium there. Okay. I should figure out how to use that. Okay, good. Uh, you know, we have two uh, missionary teams that are uh, that work in the Philippine Islands. Uh, they're on our list. Uh, Robinson de Rosa and Daryl Anita Anderson. And I included a map that I pulled this map down off of uh, Google and insert it because the map you're going to see on the next slide is a is kind of fuzzy. There are three maps, and they show the path of the storm, but they're pretty fuzzy. Daryl and Nita Anderson work in Davao, which is on Mindanao Island, which is right about here. And then Ralph and Cindy Rose are up on the island of Luzon in a place called Lucina City. I'm sorry if my aim is not very steady there. I have to work on my... Uh, Eight steady hold factors. <laughs> so um, I don't know if you can see these, Scott. Would you mind hitting the lights? The, uh, the each of these slides that are 
plastered onto this one slide show the path of the storm in different ways. This slide shows the area that was affected. And you can see it was the, the central Philippine Islands that was affected. And it's just amazing that uh, uh, Ralph and Cindy Rosa up here in Luzon are just outside of that, uh, that band there. And of course, the dark band in the middle is the uh, where the, the most severe uh, damage took place. That were the, the people who were affected the most. And then down here in Davao, uh, Daryl and Anita Anderson, they were not affected directly, okay? But they were in a position to then assist after the storm. And I'm not sure what Daryl and Anita Anderson did. I'm sure, uh, in fact, I've seen in a recent email that uh, they've, they've had some opportunities too. But at the time that we were trying to make the decision who to present our annual gift to, uh, we knew that Ralph and Cindy LaRose were already thinking, they were already uh, taking steps to actually do that. And they had a contact in the, on the island, Cebu uh, Island. Uh, their daughter uh, is on that island. And while she was not in the area that was affected, it was just right up in the northern tip there. She was involved, and she had some contacts with some people that were definitely affected up in the northern tip of that island. So we decided to send our gift to Ralph and Cindy Rosa. And unlike previous years, we didn't split it out. We just sent it all to them. And, uh, and it was a good move, I believe, because in the uh, annual newsletter, Ralph, specific, he didn't specifically mention our gift, but apparently there were a number of other gifts. And uh, so what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to go through the, the pictures that they sent as a part of their annual newsletter, and I'll uh, read some excerpts from the newsletter that go with each of these pictures. The scene from our plane landing at Romaldez Airport in Tacloban City was like descending into a drop zone that I can still vividly remember during the Vietnam War. A huge Chinook helicopter was ready to take off, as a uniform medical unit boarded in single file. A green camouflage cargo plane was nearby with tons of relief goods stacked on pallets waiting on the tarmac to be loaded. After disembarking, you know, he's back into the real world, the current world, after embarking here uh, at, in uh, Tacloban City, Pastor Danny Mano, who is on the right, and I, so Ralph is on the left, are standing in front of one of the main buildings of the airport. All structures in sight look as if they had been hit by mortar and artillery rounds the night before. So it brought back the memories of, of Vietnam for him. Mm. Then uh, the highlight of the mission was to visit, speak, and give relief goods to the remaining teachers. There was a remaining teachers, I, I think if there were some casualties. And, and the principal of the Bethel, or Bethel International School located near Tacloban City. On the left, you'll see the aerial view and uh, us above us, I'm sorry, aerial view above left, us again in front of the main building right. What you can't see is a gymnasium being constructed. It was about three quarters complete, was turned into a pile of rubble by the typhoon, by the super typhoon. That was not on the, on the slide. And then also in Dr. Von C, uh, they were able to conduct a two hour Bible class in one of the surviving classrooms that was being powered by a generator. And the, uh, the, the teacher, the senior teacher, Mrs. Elaine DePaz, seventh from the right in this photo, uh, made the visit possible. Her husband, Vic, is the pastor who set up their trips to various churches on the island of Waiti. A big surprise when we got there was that the principal, Miss Luz Isabal, on the far left, had been the principal at Cebu 
international school when our daughter Natalie was in the fifth grade. This was their last teacher's meeting before going on furlough, hoping the repairs would be complete in time for classes this year. And then, I think this is the last photo that I actually have uh, notes for. Uh, then there's some additional photos, uh, which he just mentioned in the in the uh, newsletter, and it was basically one liner, it was just bullet points. Um, Operation Leyte Mission Base. In this photo, during our Taklavan visit, we stayed in a house across the street from, uh, or occupied, I'm sorry, across the street from several damaged houses that were temporarily occupied by the Philippine National Police. This was part of our logistical grace provision. There was still a curfew in effect at that time. You can see unlivable houses in the background damaged by Yolanda. And I know you can't see that too well, but they are there. So uh, the rest of these graphics, again, uh, he just mentioned them briefly. But they were able to visit all of these locations, and I put the locations on each slide, so I won't mention that as I go through these. But he does, uh, in his closing of his uh, newsletter, which is just a one-page newsletter, he does say that uh, they've already <coughs> got an open door for future visits at many of these locations. And in fact, they have a, a tentative schedule that runs from January through April. And a couple of those dates are already behind us now, and I don't have an update to know whether they actually fulfilled those dates. They might have shifted, I'm not sure. But the point is that they received a lot of open doors, and uh, it was just an awful lot of damage. Uh, and the people were definitely in need, and it definitely gave them an opportunity to, to bring God's Word and present the Gospel to many people, and there with future opportunities out there. And then he uh, mentioned, and it's not in the newsletter, but I think it was in the email, that uh, how he appreciated all the people who sent financial gifts to support and because of the typhoon. And then he closes in his newsletter with uh, this, the lesson that's learned is uh, from, Philippi, from uh, Philippians 4, chapter 4, 11 through 13 from the Apostle Paul. Let's give you a second to look at that. Okay, the recent additions to our prayer list are, uh, there are three of them. We just added them on the February prayer list. Uh, the first is uh, Operation Molinar Missions. And this is a, a missionary team, another husband-wife team. Uh, some of you I know uh, are familiar with and others may know Tom and Cheryl Molinar. If you happen to be in, in Baraka anytime in the, the late 70s or during the 80s, uh, you might have known Cheryl. I don't remember her maiden name, but she she married Tom eventually. And if you're if you're in the Marines or married to someone who was in the Marines during this uh, during the last three decades, or I guess between the 70s, 80s, until about 90, um, you might know the Molinars. But Cheryl was is actually from South Africa. That's where she, she's a native South African. She grew up there. And after Tom retired, did Tom retire from the Marine Corps? No. No. But he did quite a few years in the Marine Corps, I think. Uh, whenever he finished with the Marines, at some point they they decided that they had the, uh, you know, their calling was to go to South Africa to move there. And then to, uh, originally Tom started off in a business, but after a few short years, they just felt called to the ministry and they started their this missionary uh, effort that they're doing now. This is a picture of Tom and Cheryl Molnar that I pulled up their website. And I would encourage you to, to uh, find that if you're interested in getting more information. But uh, you know, 
the uh, they currently serve as missionaries to South Africa under their ministry called Operation Walnut Mission, which is affiliated with Operation World Grace World Missions. And they, their primary mission is to ensure that the gospel of Jesus Christ is boldly proclaimed and to strengthen the body of believers wherever they are. There's more information on the website, and I encourage you to look at that. In fact, most of our missionaries do have uh, good websites, and those who don't, you can, you can find, there is information available on the Internet about their ministries. So, Eddie, uh, you know, I want to mention that there is a, a pamphlet that you put together on all of our missionaries, a little blurb, and then the website for those, so if anybody ever wants one of those pamphlets, Right. right, there is a summary that I put together back when we had about a dozen. Again, there are about there are 18 missionaries or mission organizations on our list now. So the mission pamphlet is, is uh, not up to date, but it does have uh, a good condensation, you know, a condensed summary of information that I was able to, to uh, obtain when I was putting the pamphlet together. And we do have some of those. Uh, just check the... Uh, the, uh, the front reception area, the little uh, displays that we have with materials in there. There should be some in there. If there's not, then see me. I can get you one. Okay, um, Village Ministries International. Uh, this is a, an organization, and I'm not, I can't really remember uh, the individuals who are involved. Uh, I get, well, I get it. I have a newsletter right here. I get their newsletter <laughs> regularly, but there are different phases, different people involved in this ministry. Uh, and they, they work all over, as you can see, uh, throughout the world. And, um, well, since 1990, I'll just call them VMI for short. That's, that's their uh, short name. Has established ministries in West Africa, Asia, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and Latin America. Rather than place Americans in the field on a long-term basis, VMI has found it more successful to train indigenous Christians to reach their own people. As these missionaries are trained, they become able to train other indigenous pastors and Christian workers, and they operate this way. BMI operates this way because governments often restrict foreign travelers, and indigenous pastors will always be available to teach in those countries. And one of the things that's, and, and this is true not only with BMI, but also with uh, disciple ministry, uh, disciple <laughs> makers. DM2, Disciple Makers Multiply, that I'm going to cover next, is uh, they offer opportunities to go on short-term mission trips. And uh, from the website, this came right off the DMI's website uh, last night, several times each year, Village Ministries International sponsors short-term mission trips to various areas around the world. While trips offer the participants an opportunity to get a glimpse of missions that very few Americans ever see, the primary purpose purposes of trips like this are to teach the Bible to both pastors and teachers to validate the ministry of the indigenous ministries or missionaries rather <coughs> that we support in the countries we visit and to evangelize new areas. So there's there's a, a wonderful opportunity that's available there and I wanted to include that because I know Dan uh, was just pointing this out to me just recently and uh, he's asked me to, to just look into that so I have. I, I uh, looked into the opportunities that are available VMI and DM2 and let me just go ahead and go to DM2. Now, there weren't any photos of any missionaries or staff on the VMI, so I just pulled that generic picture off. But there were some photos, and perhaps <coughs> some of you may know some of these individuals. On the left-hand side, you have their, uh, their uh, director of their board and three other board members, all from Texas. And then you've got three regional 
missionary directors or ministry directors uh, in the middle column, and then on the right you've got actual field directors or missionaries, as the case may apply. Uh, like VMI, DM2 is uh, they're out there, you know, going wherever, wherever the, the need and, and the opportunities arise. So uh, it's pretty, uh, it's a pretty wide slot, and um, like VMI, they they offer uh, some very wonderful opportunities, and they solicit volunteers. And uh, from what I gather, it looks as though it's from looking at the website that they. If you're interested in doing this, you may contact them for further information, but they expect you to raise your money. If it's a, if it's a trip in the U.S. or somewhere in North America, it's, it's going to be like under $1,000. I think maybe I think it's five or 600 or something like that. If it's going to be overseas somewhere, then it could be upwards of 3000 But uh, you're on your own to raise your own money. But then uh, they have teams and team, designated team leaders who are trained and experienced and will... Uh, assist you in developing your skills and preparing for that mission trip, wherever it may be that you decided to go. So, wonderful opportunities. Um, I, it has occurred to me since I'm not working now, I've got plenty of time. I don't have to wait until I can you know, have some vacation days saved up. I may do this, uh, and I'll be getting in touch with them in the near future. If any of you do, uh, please, you know, if you would, just get back with me and let me know that you've contacted them. Just let me know what your experience was, what you, uh, anything that you were able to find out. Just let me know that you're uh, also looking into it. And if you have any questions, if anyone has any questions, then please uh, don't hesitate to call me, email me, or talk to me at church. Uh, at this point, are there any questions or comments? Dan, did I pretty much cover what you You did. Said? Okay. And then coming soon, the CEF Good News Club update that will be focused on the three teams that our church supports in Fairfax County and all Thank you, Randy. can't remember from whom I stole that, but actually it's not mine. <laughs> All right, Randy, again, uh, thank you. I very much appreciate that. Uh, missions is extremely important, and it's, it should be important to every church. And we have, um, you know, there are a lot of other things on our plate, so to speak, that require uh, our financial attention. But we shouldn't move missions off that plate. And uh, that is one of the uh, responsibilities that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and particularly as a local church, is to support the outreach to other other nations, to take the gospel to, uh, to other lands, to other places. And so it's important that we do that. <clears throat> 
All right. Um, as we shift gears here to um, for our second service, get us down to where I need to be. We are really in the middle of studying gospel presentations, I guess we could say. Uh, and in the last two weeks, uh, I've been teaching about the various uses of the word for salvation, either to save, which would be the verb, or salvation, which is the noun, that uh, family of words, we call them cognates, in, uh, specifically in, in languages. But as with any word that we study, the true and accurate definition, of course, of the word itself is not found uh, in the word, but it's found in how we use the word. Last week I used as the example the word train, and how it can be used in different ways. Well, a very, another very simple word, what I'm doing is trying to il- uh, indicate to you that this is not unique to uh, the Greek language or Hebrew language. It occurs in every language. Uh, another word that we might use, a very simple word, is, the, is run. You know, we can have the word run used as a noun. We can use it as a verb. Uh, first of all, if we're running, that means to move quickly, some, someone moving quickly from one place to another. But it can also be used uh, to determine how something is functioning. How is it running? How is the church running? How is your church running? Well, that doesn't mean the church building is moving. It uh, doesn't mean anyone in the congregation is moving, other than maybe uh, spiritually. We can also use it as a noun if there's a run in possibly a stocking or a tie or a, uh, a garment of some sort. So this occurs, it's simply how is the word used. Now, when you come to a word that has various definitions, how do you determine what it means? Again, you have to go back to the author and what is the authorial intent, we call this. How was he using the word at the time? So we must always be careful of the context in which the word is found. Now, we're talking about the words salvation and that family group. And two weeks ago, I, I, I showed you the graph one more time, and I want to go back to that graph. And you're getting a very heavy dose of this because this doesn't, come easy. It's not something that we understand uh, intuitively because we have been trained in a different fashion. But this, I call this the three stages, we could say the three tenses of salvation, depending upon uh, how you understand it. And I'm illustrating it in this way. We have three phases. The first phase of salvation is, another word, is justified. Justification. Uh, At a point in time when an individual has faith in Christ, God the Father declares them justified. 
he imputes to them the righteousness of Christ. And when they receive that divinely, divine reception, the Father says they are justified. And that happens at a point in time. The second phase here is sanctification, being set apart. We can use the word sanctification for phase one. We can say that you are sanctified at a point of time. You're set apart at a point of time. But we very often theologically use the term sanctification for phase two, the spiritual life. And what that means, as you can tell with the dotted line here, it comes from the moment of salvation to the moment of glorification. And so it is a continuous or ongoing part of our life after salvation. Phase two, sanctification, we are being set apart. We are being sanctified. Or we could say, as several texts do, we are being saved. And then finally, glorification. Glorification being the third phase. Phase three, that's at the moment of death for the believer. Not an unbeliever. For a believer, at the moment of death, they are going to pass from time to eternity. And it's not at that point that they receive the resurrection body. But the sanctification phase stops. And the body goes into the grave. Soul and the spirit go to be with the Lord in heaven. And there will come a time when their soul and spirit will be reunited with their body. For believers in the church age, that's going to be the rapture. And at that point, we will receive our our resurrection body, or we will be glorified. And so, how do we see these with relationship to uh, sanctification? Well, we say that justification happens at a point of time. It's positional. We are placed into union with Christ. And in that position, we are sanctified. We are set apart. Secondly, during our spiritual life, we have many experiences. And those experiences are designed to sanctify us to set us apart spiritually, for us to grow spiritually so that we become spiritually mature. And we call that experiential sanctification. And then finally, at the point that we receive our resurrection body, at the point of of ultimate sanctification, glorification, we say that we are ultimately sanctified. Uh, Ultimate sanctification means that's it. That is the ultimate, the extent the highest achievement in our spiritual lives. We will be sanctified. We receive our glorification body. And how does that then relate to this word saved? As I said, tenses, we're going to look, we will look here at three tenses. The past, the present, and the future. And of course, this is designed for someone who has not believed yet. This is for the believer. So you have the point of salvation is in the past for you. You're still alive. Most of you appear to be still alive this morning. And so it is a continuous process. So say we say we're saved from the penalty of sin, and that is past tense, you were saved. So we're saved from the penalty of sin, 
you were saved. Point of time. Secondly, we say that you're saved from the power of sin, saved from the penalty of sin. The Lord Jesus Christ on the cross took that penalty. We are never going to encounter that requirement again. No matter what someone tells you, you will not answer for your sins in heaven. Otherwise, the Lord goes to the cross in vain. Secondly, under phase two, spiritual life, experiential sanctification, we're saved from the power of sin. We no longer need to be slaves to sin. We can, through the power of our spiritual lives, achieve victory over sin. And then finally, which means you are being saved. It's a process. You are being saved. And then finally, saved from the presence of sin is the ultimate sanctification. Saved from the presence of sin will lose our human body, or it will be transformed, but we lose that old human body that has been tainted by sin. And it will be transformed so that it is a glorified body, a resurrection body. And we say that you will be saved. And that's how the word is used in the New Testament. We simply need to determine when and how it's being used so that we can properly understand what is being said. Now, last week and the week before, we looked at, uh, we examined several verses. Uh, the first one here, Acts 16.31. And they said, this is the Apostle Paul, as well as uh, Barney, Barnabas, said to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We know from that that the Philippian jailer, or we know in the context, the Philippian sailor has not believed because he asks the question of the evangelistic team, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe and you will be saved. So we know that this is phase one. This is phase one justification, positional sanctification. You will be saved. It uh, doesn't fit our chart unless you understand that he's a non-believer. So as soon as he believes, then it's past tense for him. Our second verse that we examined, and we need to go back to Romans 10.13, because that is a, a very difficult passage. It's a difficult passage after you've studied it several times. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, uh, this is Romans 10.13. It's a quotation from Joel 2. And if we study the context of Joel 2, and actually if we study the context in Romans uh, chapter 10, we realize that Joel is talking about Old Testament saints who are believers. And we also know that, the, that Paul is addressing the, um, the Romans in the same way, talking about Jews. He's talking about a future time when Israel will call on the name of the Lord. And this works wonderfully with the verse that we were studying this morning, or the, that I quoted this morning, from... Uh, Matthew twenty three thirty nine. For I tell you, you will not, you will see me no more until you say, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." So, who will call on him in that way? A group of unbelievers? No, a group of believers will. 
A group of believers are going to call on the name of the Lord. They're not calling on Him for salvation. They're calling on Him for deliverance. We can call on the Lord for deliverance. And we do all the time. So they are calling on the Lord for physical assistance. And that's how that passage is used in Joel. And it's how Paul uses it. The next verse we saw was for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. 2 Corinthians 7.10 Many people use this passage to demonstrate that we need to feel sorry for our sins. You must feel sorry for your sins. Or you can't uh, be saved. Well, that's not what this passage is teaching. And we spent time last week looking at the passage. We understand that Paul's teaching believers. And he's also uh, is talking to them about a strained relationship that they had as believers between the apostle and his students, his church that he established. And it caused Paul anxiety and it caused them anxiety. But, he says, that anxiety, that stress and strain in our spiritual life caused you, Corinthians, to come to a place where you changed your mind about how you were living. And it led you to salvation. Well, they're already saved. So unless we don't believe in uh, eternal security and them now being resaved, that has to mean something else. And we saw that this means phase two, sanctification, leading to continued growth in your spiritual life. So this is phase two, salvation. All right. Now, this morning, I would like to go to one more verse. We've covered one, two, and three. And as I said, we need to go back to to two. But there's going to be one more verse, and here we have it. Four. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, we have a passage. And often, when someone asks the question, what must you do to be saved? Or what are some of the critical elements in being saved? What do you need to tell someone that they need to do in order to be saved? In other words, are there critical elements here? So as you're witnessing to someone, I need to make sure I get at least four, three, two, five. What do people need to know in order to be saved? Some of you may not realize this, but if you ask that question, many people will say, well, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, because Paul gives us a list of what you need to do, what you need to believe in order to be saved. So let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, we've just gone through 2 Corinthians 7. And I could say the exact same thing for 1 Corinthians 15 that I did for 2 Corinthians as far as the background is concerned. Paul has established a church in Corinth. Paul is writing to that church as 
a congregation, an assembly of believers who are struggling in the Christian life. And 1 Corinthians 15, excuse me, 1 Corinthians is literally, we believe, an answer to many questions that were written or somehow came to the apostle. And he just starts in, in each chapter and he's answering questions. Or he's addressing spiritual needs that that congregation has. And so, as we uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and read this passage, that's what we have to understand. That he's, he's writing to believers. And there's a particular problem that chapter 15 is going to address. So, verse 1. Moreover, brethren. What does that mean? It, it's not unbelievers. It's believers. He's writing to believers. And every now and then someone will say yes, but in every congregation there's a certain percentage of unbelievers. Well, that might be true. Um, and we'll just say that it is true. But Paul is not writing to the unbelievers in the congregation. He's writing to the believers in the congregation because he's trying to uh, change their minds about their spiritual lives, help them to advance in their spiritual lives. Moreover, brethren, believers, I declare, a much better translation would be there, make known, kind of helps us a little bit, but declare is fine. I declare or make known to you all, to all of you, the gospel. Boy, we get hung up there. What does the word gospel mean? Which I preached or I announced, probably a better word here might be announced, which I announced to you all, which also you received and in which you stand, and I would probably use a word in which you are established, you've established yourself, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word, we could say message, which I preached to you, or the word here, the two words preached are the same word. We could say which I announced to you, or I preached to you, communicated to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, this can be a tough two verses unless you, again, have a fairly solid background in what's being communicated, because you see the word gospel, and you see the word saved, and then we go right into verse 3 that says, For I delivered to you first, meaning the priority of all, that which I also received. So, if we're talking about his gospel message, and what you need to do to be saved, then here's our list. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And then he goes on and says, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and then he, and he continues on. All right. Well, as I said, if you were to ask many Bible scholars, or uh, men who are in ministry, or uh, those in the congregation, is there a passage somewhere we can go to find some essential elements for salvation that people need to know. More than likely, if they're familiar with the Bible, they'll say 1 Corinthians 15. 
This is the passage that gives us a list of what someone needs to hear from you when you're witnessing so that they can be saved. Is that true? Well, the answer is, no, it's not. I'm not saying this information isn't valuable and it may assist you in bringing someone to saving faith. I'm simply saying that's not what this passage is teaching. And we just need to understand that. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't tell someone that Christ died, rose the third day according to the scripture. Though that that's wonderful information. But you can't come here and say it's required for salvation because that's the gospel message. Gospel meaning how to be justified, phase one salvation, in order to be saved. So what do we have here? What What is involved? Well, let's go back up to verse one. Well, first of all, let me go to our, my next slide here. What must you do to be saved? Here's our verse. First of all, and I realize that most of you are going to try to rapidly write this down. Uh, you, you don't need to. It's not a requirement. I'm going to go through it rather quickly because, as I said, you know this. Paul's writing to believers in Corinth. Secondly, Paul's instructing these believers in the spiritual life. He's talking to them about their spiritual life. Thirdly, Paul is teaching the importance of resurrection for their spiritual life. These are Greeks. Greeks who have been told most of their life that the body that they possess is evil. And when it dies, you're rid of it. You're never going to uh, have it again. And for the most part, it will never be resurrected. Well, they were also told, in many cases, that there is no afterlife. And so Paul now is going to teach them that that's not true. That we have an eternal destiny. Not only that, but this physical body will be raised again. And it will be glorified. Fourth, the gospel is used here in a general sense of the spiritual life. The word gospel here could easily be translated... um, We'll often use it to mean good news. But it's also beneficial information. That's what the word gospel really means when you you look at the word and study it. It it has the sense of being beneficial information, spiritual information. So it's used in the general sense of the spiritual life or spiritual information. Fifth, saved is a present passive indicative now again i have to pause just a moment but you should know this it's present it's not past it's present and probably a better translation of this is that you are being saved it's ongoing action well we know from studying our chart and we know even prior to the chart, that salvation is a one-time event. It occurs at a point in time. It's not an ongoing event. Phase one salvation, justification, positional sanctification. 
you were saved sometime in the past. Boom. This is present tense. It's ongoing action, continuous action. That's our first problem. Sixth, saved here is phase two salvation or sanctification. It's phase two. You are being saved. Did I have a seven? No, I didn't. Yes. Otherwise, salvation would depend on what? Holding on. Holding fast, excuse me. All right. So let's go back to our text. And I think we can wrap this pretty quickly. Paul says to these believers, I'm making known to you, I've made known to you, actually, I declare, or I am declaring to you the good announcement, the beneficial information, which I announced to you in the past, previously, which you also, which you received, past tense, and in which you are established. You've already been established in that information. You have it. You received it. Another way to, to work on the word received there is that you've accepted it. You've believed it. You have it. By which you are, and the translation here I said is a little vague, I think a better translation, or a, little, it's a better translation to understand it, is by which also you are being saved. It's a past, excuse me, it's a present uh, passive indicative. So, the information that you believe and you've accepted, if you continue to believe it, it continues to bring you along in your spiritual life. The next clue for us should have been the if and it is a first-class condition, because Paul says, if, and I'm going to assume that it's true, he says to them, if you hold fast that word, that information, which I announce to you. So, when is phase one salvation, when is justification contingent upon holding fast to something? No, there's only one requirement. That is believe. Believe and you will be saved. Not believe and hold fast to this information. So Paul is saying you're going to advance in your Christian life if you hold fast to the spiritual information that I've told you in the past and you've accepted and you believe. It's part of your spiritual foundation. Don't leave it. Don't abandon it. I didn't teach you that your physical body is going to go to the grave and that's it. And by the way, Paul says, um, which I preach to you unless you believed in vain. He's going to use that the sense of that phrase twice. The first time is here for believers. The second time will be for believers again, but he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Here, this translation is a bit, I think it's a bit misleading because it says, um, you are being saved if you hold fast that word, that information, which I preach to you, which I announce to you, 
unless you believed in vain. A better word here, the, the word unless is a combination of three Greek words. And I think a better word for us to understand this in English is otherwise. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Your faith is worthless. If you're going to just disband what I've told you, then your faith is useless. If you're not going to believe it, it's useless. Now, turn the page, maybe the page, verse 14 says, he's talking here about the resurrection, verse 14, but there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, it's worthless, and your faith is also worthless. So, this is Paul trying to inculcate into them an understanding of the resurrection. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and their resurrection. Um, verse 12 says, Now if Christ is preached, proclaimed, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That was their problem. And so Paul here, in verse uh, verses in verse 2, of chapter 15, is trying to bring these believers back to a growing, a maturing spiritual life. So that this verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, very often quoted as a salvation verse and very often quoted to say, you know, if you don't believe and then have a list of things, then you were never really saved. Or you gave someone an incomplete uh, gospel presentation. Well, you may have given someone an incomplete gospel presentation. And there may have been some parts of it that uh, omitted uh, critical information. But you can't prove it from this passage. Because this is for spirit, this is for believers. Now, people often ask the question, what must you believe? What is the basic requirements? What are the bare bones facts that I need to give someone to be saved? And then they'll go to a passage. Maybe in John. Maybe in Romans. Maybe in First uh, Thessalonians. Maybe in another passage of Scripture. The problem is, individuals come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ based upon sometimes very minimal information, and sometimes it's a lifetime of you witnessing to them. And we know that you know, many people have believed with hardly any information, and that's the faith of a child. And those of us who work in good news clubs with the children, and you've been around your children and other children, uh, they're ready to believe. They're just ready to believe. And that's the, uh, the concept that the Lord is teaching when he talks about children, oh, that people would have the faith of children. What's it mean? It means that they'll believe very easily. And, of course, John 3.16, simply believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well, you say, well, do they need to believe that? Therefore, they have to understand uh, what Savior means. Do they have to understand what the lake of fire is? Do they need to understand all the rest of that? Well, most of them don't and won't for many, many years. 
So it's very difficult to nail down exactly what has to be said because some people are ready to believe. And when they know that God loves them and he sent his son to be their savior or to provide them with eternal life, a way that they can live with God forever, they're ready to believe. And they believe. And others, it's going to take the old jackhammer. You know, breaking up old cement highways that they've traveled down. And that's why Paul, very often with Gentile congregations, goes all the way back to Genesis 1. All right, let's start at the beginning. And he walks them through a lot of information. Other people don't need that kind of information. And therefore, as you witness to your friends, you're constantly aware of hopefully what they're understanding or what they're believing. Some will require more, some will require less. And I think it's really difficult, maybe dangerous, to try to say, okay, this is absolutely what you have to tell someone, otherwise they're not going to believe because they don't have enough information. They, they need sufficient information. But very often, individuals are different. And God the Holy Spirit leads us in our uh, uh, impartation of information. And one of the things we also have to learn is that sometimes we have a tendency to take people around the barn when the door is right there. You know, there's a nugget that we heard that we just got to tell them. And then there's another nugget. And pretty soon we've gotten ourselves in trouble and we're trying to dig ourselves out of a hole. For salvation, very often, keep it simple. Just keep it simple. Don't unload on them all the spiritual information that you have. We're not trying to demonstrate how smart we are in biblical doctrine. We're trying to bring them to saving faith. That's it. Let them work on that. Not to get them to believe Revelation 13 or 15 or some other passage. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that salvation truly is. Phase one salvation truly is simple. The hard part is the in-between part here. Growing spiritually. Two points in time. The point where we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as as our Savior for eternal life. And also at the end of life. Those two are point in time, but it's that process in the middle that is so difficult because we live in the cosmic system and because we have a sin nature that would love to take us afar. So, Father, we're thankful for the text of Scripture. We're thankful for the Apostle Paul teaching spiritual things. Help us to learn to read the text, to understand the text, and then use it correctly. And we pray, Father, that we will have a compassion for others, for the unbelievers, um, and be ready and willing to give spiritual information to them. And also, Father, have the same or even more compassion for those of us who are believers within the body of Christ, uh, having the compassion, concern, and care for them. Uh, because the spiritual life is difficult, and we are here to help one another. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.